Invite the people, the poor, the lame, the crippled, the homeless. He says, invite the people that can give you nothing in return. So that's what Jesus is saying, okay? So then this is where the story picks up. One of the dinner guests, on hearing this, said to him, Blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It's one of those guys that utters what the guy just said. Have you ever seen those people who we have friends maybe who everyone says something really smart or they say something witty and then there's that person that just agrees with that person? That's what this guy was doing. He says, blessed will be anyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, knowing that he probably missed the point, he goes on to say this, verse 16. Then Jesus said to him, someone gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for the dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. So the custom of the time, much like it is today, when you're going to have a party or a banquet or a feast, you send invitations ahead of time. So in this, in this story, it is very likely that the host, the owner of this party, the, the, the wedding planner in essence, had already sent the invitations out. Not only had he sent the invitations out, but the people who had been invited would have already RSVP'd, very much like we do today. So everybody knew weeks, months ahead of time, maybe even years at some points ahead of time that this banquet, that this feast was going to take place on, on a particular day. And so they RSVP'd. Everybody had said, okay, we're going to be there. We're going to be there. Count on us. Everything's going to be great. So then... The, the owner sends the slave or his servant to tell the people who have been invited, all right, the feast is ready. It's time for us to get our party on. And this is what happens next. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I've bought a piece of land and I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please accept my regrets. And another said, I have just been married, and therefore I cannot come. Let me ask you this question. How many of you would buy a house or a property without really having inspected it first? No, that's foolish, right? We would counsel someone, don't do that. Go inspect it. Do all sorts of research. Make sure that this is the exact place or land that you want. Let me ask you another question. How many of you would ever buy a car without test driving it? Even if it was the best, nicest car and you could afford it and you had the money for it, how many of you would buy a car before test driving it? No. As a matter of fact, they get you to buy the car when they test drive it. How many of you have ever gone to a car dealer and, and you're there and you're just like, hey, I'm just here to ask questions about this car. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Come, sit down. You, would you like some water? Would you like some coffee? We have chocolate bars, whatever it is, right? So you're feeling good. You're, you're like, all right, yeah. And all you really want to know is how much is it going to cost? What kind of deal can you give me? And, you know, can you get the payments as low as possible? Really, that's all we're there for. So what, is it, what do they do? What, what do they do? They say, oh, yeah, hold on, I'll be right back. Ten minutes later, you see the car pull up right in front of the window. And then the guy comes in, and he's like, hey, let's go take this for a drive. Come on, just, just go take it for a drive. I remember the first time I did this, I really wasn't in a place to buy my car, um, I didn't have the down payment. I didn't have anything. I was literally just looking. And so the guy took me on a test drive. He took me through the whole thing. And an hour later, I was like, dude, I really don't have the money to buy this car. I really was just asking the questions. But that's how they get. I was like ready to sign on the dotted line. The guy's like, you can bring the down payment in the next 30 days. We'll work with you. You can do whatever. It doesn't matter. Your credit score doesn't matter. We'll get you this car. And I was like, well, I had to think about it. They sell you with a test drive. 
none of us would buy a car unless we test drive it first. And then the third excuse is, I just got married, so I can't come. That, that's excusable, right? The question that this raises is, why wouldn't he bring his wife? So that's another sermon for another time for, for men, I think. <laughs> but why would they make excuses? The illustration that we gave you when Jaime and our three um, actors is, why would you say no to going away to Malibu on a weekend with all of these things, the spa and the tennis courts and basketball courts and movie theater? Why would any of us say no to that? And that's the question that we are confronted with in this parable in Luke, is why would people say no to something that they had already said yes to? They began to make excuses. Yes, Lord, I've sinned, but I have several excellent excuses I read a story of a woman. A woman a woman had bought a very expensive dress, and her husband asked her, "Why have you been so extravagant?" To which she replied, "The devil made me do it." The husband responds by saying, "Well, um, why didn't you say, "Get thee behind me, Satan?" I did explain the wife, but he said that the dress looked just as good in the back as it did in the front, so I bought it. <laughs> We come up with all sorts of excuses. But an excuse is really just what we do when we want to justify our actions or the lack of our actions. We all have excuses and we use them to justify why we aren't doing what we should be doing or what is best for us. Here's another illustration for you. In one educational study um, for college students, the most typical excuse Let's see if you get this one. I didn't realize, but I couldn't use this anyway when I was in college. But the most typical student excuse for exams and missed papers was the death of a grandparent. According to one article, (laughs) some students killed off as many as eight to ten grandparents in the course of their college careers. Even in an extended blended family, you know, four might be a lot. But yeah, they, they use that because... How can you argue with that? You can't, can you? Because what if it's true? So it's, it's one of these things where excuses, we use them all the time because they come handy to us. We don't want to do what we are supposed to. One of the quotes that I came across is, excuses are just rationalizations for a person's lack of motivation. Here's another one that, I, that is going to transition us back to the text. Excuses are just like desires, but they come but come from within. Both both come from within. I'm sorry. The difference between them is huge. Desire will drive you towards your goals, while excuses will pull you from your goals. So a desire, an intention to do something, will set you in the direction of doing that thing. But an excuse will make you go around it or make you do everything you can so you don't have to do this one thing. Here's the point that I want to make. Excuses are personal preoccupations rather than a reasonable priority. Let me repeat that. The excuses that we find in this parable in Scripture were personal preoccupations rather than a reasonable priority. But I think by now, if you've been coming to this church for a while, you'll realize that Jesus is actually trying to do something more with this story. Jesus, as he always does, was trying to get to a deeper issue. Jesus was trying to make a bigger point. Jesus was going somewhere with this parable that they were not expecting. 
We make excuses because we want to justify the way that we live our lives. When it comes to God, and I have to read this because I want to make sure I get it right. When it comes to God, we do the same. We make excuses as to why we don't spend more time with God. There are pressures. I understand that. We have jobs. We have children. We have extracurricular activities. There are so many different reasons that we use as to why we don't develop a relationship with God. But if you have ever felt like maybe things aren't the way they should be, or if you've ever felt like the walls are closing in on you and things just don't seem to be going right, and maybe you're on shaky ground, I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, if things are getting shaky... Where is your foundation? What have you founded your life on? Or rather, who have you founded your life on? Just a quick story this week. This, um, well, the memory verse for my 10-year-old at school um, was, was the one about building your house on the rock. Um, but it was a version that I hadn't heard because it's for little kids, so it's a little different. They make it easier for them. And I, and I went on to about a 30-minute sermon to my 10-year-old son uh, about the difference between building your house on the rock, which is Christ, or on the sand, which is everything else. He's like, I got it after I explained the first five minutes. But the point is, is that that's a teaching that we have to address every single day of our lives. What are you or who are you basing your life on? Here's another quote um, we can make excuses for almost anything we don't want to do, we, do, we want to do or don't want to do, but God sees through them. Our excuses may be the very things that are keeping us out of God's party, out of God's kingdom, and out of God's presence. If you feel like things just aren't right, if you feel like things are shaky or maybe the walls are closing in on you, the question you have to ask is, have you come to God first before everything else? In the Old Testament, what we find um, in the book of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles in the Old Testament, these are almost history books. And, and it's just chapter after chapter after chapter of the kings of Israel and Judah. And what we find is, is it would say, and so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, started reigning at age 25 and reigned for however many years. And then the next sentence describes something that is important. It'll either say, and so-and-so followed the ways of the Lord, or it says, and so-and-so disregarded the ways of the Lord and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And depending on that one line, it determined whether their kingdom or their kingship would prosper and do well or whether it would be taken away quickly. Now, we aren't kings. We are saints, Right? We are children of God, but we have the same decision to make whether we will do what is honorable towards God or whether we will live our lives just to satisfy our own desires and self-gratifications. Who are we living for? What are we living for? Are you making or have you been making excuses as to why you're not dedicating your life to God? Are you making excuses as to why you're not developing this relationship with God? The question perhaps that I want to ask is, why is the story of God's kingdom not more compelling? Why are every other stories more compelling? Now, if you notice, how many of you watched the Super Bowl? Oh, come on, we watched the Super Bowl. Yeah. 
Yeah, I watched the Super Bowl, and there was all sorts of commercials. And, and now, you know, commercials are probably more fun than watching the game, except this particular game was full of intensity, and it was actually really fun to watch after the second quarter. But the truth is, is these commercials, they're, they're there to make you laugh. They're there to make fun of things, but they're also there selling a certain kind of life. If you look at commercials, at billboards all around, what they're actually selling isn't a product. They're selling a certain kind of lifestyle that comes if you have this product. If you buy this thing, it's going to make you happier. If you buy this thing, you're going to be wealthier. If you buy this thing, you're going to be better looking. If you buy this thing, you'll be a better man or a more beautiful woman. That's what they're selling. And so the question that this parable addresses is, why are those stories more compelling than the story that God wants to give you an abundant life. See, the thing is that we have to buy all of those products. But the Bible shows us that God is giving us the gift of grace and the gift of abundant life, and it costs us nothing. It's free. And yet we, like people in this story, often make excuses as to why we don't want to go towards this story, the compelling story that God has given us this gift. So let's, um, oh, here we go back, back. God is more interested in forgiving you than in hearing your excuses. I want to read to you from another, another story in the Bible. It's the story of the prodigal son. And if you've never heard this story, it's a son whose father is fairly wealthy. Here's the, this is the parable, the way it goes. And the son, who's not even the eldest son, he says, Father, I want you to give me my share of my inheritance And the father says, okay, fine, here, he gives it to him, and the son leaves and goes and lives whatever kind of life of leisure and fun and all that kind of stuff. What's interesting about that is when he tells his father, I want my share of the inheritance, when do you typically get an inheritance? After they die. So in essence, what this this son was saying is, I kind of wish that you were dead, father, so that I could have the money that is coming to me. That's painful, right? Like as kids, we say all kinds of painful things to our parents, but I think that one tops the list. So the son goes, as the story says, the son goes, he spends all of his money. He finds himself poor, naked, dirty, with no home, with no money, with no food. He has nothing. And so the son says this, so he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Oh. And sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Remember, God doesn't care about the excuses. God is already ready to forgive you. Now, as the son is coming from, it says the Bible says that while he was still a far distance away, the father sees him runs to him. The son starts to confess to his father, but he doesn't even get through the whole confession. The father, does he say, okay, I have forgiven you. I will forgive you. We can talk about it later. What does the father do? He says, he sends out the slaves to plan this big celebration because his son had come home. He had already forgiven his son. This father didn't owe this son anything. He could have just cast him out. He could have made him a slave, but instead out of a father's heart, 
he forgives him. He had already forgiven his son, and then he welcomes him in and gives him the life that he had. In essence, he even gives him a better life. He gives him a ring. He gives him the best cloak. He throws a celebration for him. The son was ready to make all sorts of excuses, I can only imagine. But rather, the father isn't interested in all of that. All the father cares is that the son has come home. This morning, I want to raise this question to you. In your heart, you can answer this, is how many of you, and you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you have been like this prodigal son who have made all sorts of excuses as to why you're not giving your life to Christ? How many of you have ever made all sorts of excuses and given valid reasons, good excuses, as to why you haven't been developing this relationship with God? I want to tell you that there's no need to feel guilty. I've shared this story before. I have a friend who, who tells me, yeah, I'd like to come back to church. And I've shared this story before. I'd like to come back to church. I'd like to go to church. But the thing is, I don't think that I would be very well accepted there because of this, this, and this. And not only that, but I just don't feel like I'm good enough to be there. To which I tell him, um, we've all done all sorts of things, and we do them. And um, none of us are good enough or worthy. But the reality is, is if we are open, if our hearts are open, if our minds and hearts and souls are open to, the, to this relationship with God, God will take the lead in this relationship but it only requires that you open your heart up to this. So as we continue back to verse 21 in the first story, the slave returned and reported this, that the people had made excuses to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the towns and bring in the poor, the crippled, and the lame. These were all of the people that nobody wanted anything to do with. The poor, the blind, the crippled, those were the people that you couldn't even sit at the same table with. You couldn't even, you weren't even supposed to talk to them. You weren't supposed to touch them. And if you did, in the Old Testament, there was all sorts of laws in the book of Leviticus. If you're ever bored and you want to read something interesting, (laughs) read the book of Leviticus. It has all sorts of things. And if you touched one of these people, you had to go and wash yourself and you would be unclean. Just by being next to these people, you would be unclean, okay? So these are all the people that were sent out of the city. They were sent to the outskirts of the town. Nobody wanted to mess with them. Nobody wanted anything to do with them because just hanging out with them would make you dirty, okay? So there's all this cultural context that comes with this, this heaviness. And yet those are the people that the owner of the house invites into this banquet that had been prepared for his friends and for his family. And the slave said, sir, what you have ordered has been done, and there is still room. Then the master said to the slave, Go out to the roads and the lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. And then this last verse, if you have your own Bible, you can underline it. For I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. That's the punchline. None of those who were invited will taste my dinner. I would put it this way. Jesus wants to save Christians. Jesus wants to save Christians. That's an oxymoron because the idea is if you're a Christian, you're already saved. Amen? If you're a Christian and you have faith in Christ, then you technically, biblically, theologically, and all other sorts of things, you are saved if you believe and have faith in Christ. 
You see, this parable is about so much more than just a banquet and people with excuses. What this parable is actually saying is that there is a group of people who thought that they were in, that they were already in the kingdom of God. There was a group of people who, because of their beliefs, because they had memorized scripture, because of how they lived their life and followed the laws, they tithed, they went to synagogue on Sabbath, um, they didn't work on Sabbath, they did the people who just accept the gift of Christ. In the 21st century, as Christians, we may run the danger of being a part of the group that thinks that they are in the kingdom of God, that they are in, that they are guaranteed salvation. But what Jesus is saying is just because you think that doesn't necessarily mean that you are. The truth is, what Jesus wants from us is to accept that we have been forgiven, accept that grace is free, and that God has been at work in our lives, transforming us. The word we use is sanctifying us, and he is doing a good work in us. The fact that you come to church and you do all of the things that you're supposed to doesn't necessarily determine whether you are in or out, but rather what is the state of your heart and what is the motivation of your heart. Do you truly believe that who Jesus is, that who Jesus says he is, he really is? This is a story for the religious people of the time who Jesus would tell people, listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. There is a danger that we run where we can become extremely legalistic, where we think if only we can be good enough, then we will be in, then we will be saved, then we will have salvation. But the truth is, as Jesus shows us, that it's not just about doing the right things. It's about having faith in the one about whom all things are written. And then I want to read one last passage. Just to show you that this is, this is a common theme throughout Scripture in Numbers 32, um, God had rescued the Israelites out of Egypt. They were slaves. They were worthless um, in Egypt. And so God comes down. The Bible says that he hears the cry of the oppressed and he rescues them. And then this is what, this is what um, God says. Surely none of the people who came up out of Egypt, the people he rescued, from 20 years or upward shall see the land that I swore to give them to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob because they have not unreservedly followed me. None except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, Kenizzite, and Joshua, son of Nun, for they have unreservedly followed the Lord. Followed the Lord. And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all the generations that had done evil in the sight of the Lord had disappeared. God had rescued these people, and I think I've counted about 11 times that the people who were rescued and were given freedom, they complained about 11 times in the Old Testament saying that they wanted to go back to Egypt where they were slaves because at least they had food there. And so God says, look, I've been doing all sorts of things for you, and you guys are still complaining. You still don't care. You still, these people, the Israelites were going after other gods. They were worshiping other gods, making other idols And so what the Bible says is, look, they were in, they had everything. I mean, it was perfect for them, but instead they chose to make excuses as to why they wouldn't follow the Lord. So they would go and choose other gods that at all. And God says, as a result of this, they didn't follow me. They didn't want to, they didn't want to um, live the life that had for them. And so they don't get to see the promised land. This is our story too. Are we willing to follow God wherever God leads us, or are we going to tread our own path and disregard what God has for us? I have news for you. The best possible life to live is one that is led by God. 
It may, recall, it may call us to do all sorts of things we never envisioned. It may call us to do bigger things than we think we can even do. But there is no better guide and there is no better light than God. God creates all things. He is a sustainer of all things. So it's probably a good idea to follow the path that God is treading. Or you can choose any other path. And so I want to finish with this one last challenge. One of the very practical ways that we can unreservedly follow the Lord, I'm going to skip through some of this, is, is, a, is a spiritual practice that thousands of Christians practice all around the world. Now, for us as Seventh-day Adventists, the word that's up on the screen carries with it all sorts of connotations, all sorts of meanings, all sorts of ideas that we have about what that word means. But it's simply a word from the German that means springtime. For 40 days, Christians all around the world will fast from something. Maybe it's food, maybe it's sugar, maybe it's sweets, maybe it's chips, maybe it's fast food, maybe it's television. The idea behind this is that there are things in all of our lives that are getting in the way of following God with all of our hearts, minds, and souls. I know what those things are in my life. Now, there are all sorts of things that are destructive. There are what we call sins in our life that create a barrier between us following God. There are these things that act as excuses for us. But for the next 40 days, beginning on Wednesday of this week, I will be practicing the spiritual discipline of Lent. I'm not having ashes on my forehead. I'm not doing any of, all, any of that, okay? But what I am doing and what I do every single year is I choose something that I know is destructive in my life. I choose something that I know is getting in the way of fully devoting my heart, mind, and soul to God. And then I put that to death for 40 days. I do everything I can to stop this, whatever this is for me, and stop it for 40 days in the hope that if I'm able to go 40 days without that, maybe it can stay dead. I want to invite you, if you are courageous enough, if you want to take this challenge, I want you to pray over this for the next couple of days. And when Wednesday comes along, I want you to ask God to take this thing, whatever it is that you know you need to get rid of. Now, listen, there's all sorts of things. Like, there's a list I have of things that, you know, I want God to take care of and get rid of in my life. So I'm only choosing one. I'm choosing the one that I know is one of those bigger things in my life that I know I have to just put to death. And for the next 40 days, I'm going to try to put it to death. So if you want to follow along with that, if you want to lift up your heart and say, Lord, these are the things. I want to live this life that you are calling me to live. On Wednesday, I'm going to just share a prayer for all of us. I'm going to share a prayer for all of you just from my home. And I'm going to just pray that God would take away this thing from your life that is keeping you from living the life that God is calling you to live. So whatever ideas you have of this, if you have an issue with the word Lent or the ideas that come with it, I'd be more than happy to talk with you about it. Um, But this is something that is personal and no one is going to keep track of this except you and God. So that's my challenge for you and I will pray and I want to invite you to pray with me as we close this, um, this teaching. Gracious God, there are all sorts of excuses that we have as to why we aren't doing what you are asking us to do. God, in our minds, intellectually, we know that your path is the best path to live, that the life you are calling us to live is the best possible life. But Lord, in the reality of our lives and in the day-to-day, there are all sorts of things that get in the way. So I want to pray for my friends, for my family who is here, Lord. 
that if you are calling us to give something up for the next 40 days, that your Holy Spirit would fill them in such a way and would fill us in such a way that we would be so full with you that we wouldn't need all of these other things that we go to. May these destructive tendencies, Lord, may these sinful things in our lives, may you put them to death so that on resurrection weekend we can experience a resurrection of sorts and that we would live into the fullness of the life you have called us to. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.